0: Eleven, roading up anguish, torment, and remorse for old age. As for me, I am the friend of gods and of good men, an agreeable companion to the artisan, an household guardian to the fathers of families, a patron and protector of servants, an associate in all true and generous friendships. The banquets of my votaries are never costly, but always delicious. For none eat or drink of them who are not invited by hunger or thirst. Their slumbers are sound, and their wakings cheerful. My young men have the pleasure of hearing themselves praised by those who are in years, and those who are in years, of being honored by those who are young. In a word, my followers are favored by the gods, beloved by their acquaintance, esteemed by their country, and after the close of their labors, honored by posterity. We know, by the life of this memorable hero, to which of these two ladies he gave up his heart, and I believe everyone who reads this will do him the justice to approve his choice. Taller Strait of Florida Abbey, the remains of Strait of Florida Abbey, in South Wales, are most interesting in many points of view, more especially as the relics of a stately seminary for learning, founded as early as the year 1164, the community of the Abbey were Cistercian monks, who soon attained great celebrity, and acquired extensive possessions, a large library was founded by them, which included the national records from the earliest periods the works of the bards and the genealogies of the princes and great families in Wales. The monks also compiled a valuable history of the principality, down to the death of in the Great. When Edward I invaded Wales, he burned the abbey, but it was rebuilt A.D. 1294. Extensive woods once flourished in the vicinity of Strait of Florida, and its burial place covered no less than 120 acres. A long list of eminent persons from all parts of Wales were here buried, And amongst them David A. P. Gwilyn, the famous bard. The churchyard is now reduced to small dimensions, but leaden coffins, doubtless belonging to once celebrated personages, are still found, both there and at a distance from the cemetery. A few aged box and yew trees now only remain to tell of the luxuriant verdure which once grew around the abbey, and of the venerable pile itself little is left, except an arch, and the fragment of a fine old wall, about forty feet high. A small church now stands within the enclosure, more than commonly interesting from having been built with the materials of the once celebrated Abbey of Strait of Florida, Cather Chiefs. In the warm summer months, a thin kind of petticoat constitutes the sole bodily attire of the Cather Chiefs, but in winter a cloak is used, made of the skins of wild beasts, admirably curried, the head, even in the hottest weather, is never protected by any covering, a fillet, into which a feather of the ostrich is stuck being generally worn, and they seldom wear shoes, except on undertaking a long journey, when they condescend to use a rude substitute for them. The bodies of both sexes are tattooed, and the young men, like the fops of more civilized nations, paint their skins and curl their hair. Their arms are the javelin, a large shield of buffalo hide, and a short club. The women exhibit taste in the arrangement of their dress, particularly for that of the head, which consists of a turban made of skin, and profusely ornamented with beads, of which adornment both men and women are very fond, a mantle of skin, variously bedecked with these and other showy trinkets, is worn, and the only distinction between the dress of the chieftain's wives and those of the lower rank consists in a greater profusion of ornaments possessed by the former, but of which all are alike vain. there is no change of dress, the whole wardrobe of the female being that which she carries about with her and sleeps in four bedclothes they have none, The grain which they chiefly cultivate is a kind of millet, a small quantity of Indian corn and some pumpkins are likewise grown, but a species of sugar cane is produced in great abundance, and of this they are extremely fond. Their diet, however, is chiefly milk in a sour curdled state, they dislike swine's flesh, keep no poultry, are averse to fish, but indulge in eating the flesh of their cattle, which they do in a very disgusting way, although naturally brave and warlike. They prefer an indolent pastoral life, hunting being an occasional pastime. Much light was thrown on the condition and future prospects of this people in 1835 by some papers relative to the Cape of Good Hope, which were laid before the English government. From these, it appeared that a system of oppression and unjustifiable appropriation on the part of the whites have from time to time roused the savage energies of the Cathars and impelled them to make severe reprisals upon their European spoilers. The longing of the Cape colonists for the well-watered valleys of the Cathars, and of the latter for the colonial cattle, which are much superior to their own, still are, as they have always been, the sources of irritation, constant skirmishes took place, until, at length, in 1834, the savages poured into the colony in vast numbers, wasted the farms, drove off the cattle, and murdered not a few of the inhabitants. An army of 4,000 men was marched against the invaders, who were driven far beyond the boundary line which formerly separated Cofferland from Cape Colony, and not only forced to confine themselves within the new limits prescribed, but to pay a heavy fine. Treaties have been entered into, and tracts of country assigned to the Cathar chiefs of several families, who acknowledge themselves to be subjects of Great Britain, and who are to pay fat ox annually as a quit rent for the lands which they occupy. McComo One of the Cathar chiefs is a man of most remarkable character and talent, and succeeded his father, Gaika, who had been possessed of much greater power and wider territories than the son, but had found himself compelled to yield up a large portion of his lands to the colonists. Makomo received no education, all the culture which his mind ever obtained being derived from occasional intercourse with missionaries. After he had grown to manhood, from 1819, the period of Gaika's concessions, up to the year 1829, he with his tribe dwelt upon the Cot River, following their pastoral life in peace, and cultivating their cornfields, suddenly they were rejected from their lands by the Cot River, on the plea that Gaka had ceded these lands to the colony, Makoma retired, almost without a murderer, to a district farther inland, leaving the very grain growing upon his fields, he took up a new position on the banks of the river Shunis. And here he and his tribe dwelt until 1833, when they were again driven out to seek a new home, almost without pretense. On this occasion McComo did make a remonstrance, in a document addressed to an influential person of the colony, in the whole of this savage Cather's leper, their island, says Dr. Philip, a beautiful simplicity, a touching pathos, a confiding magnanimity, a dignified remonstrance, which shows its author to be no common man. It was dictated to an interpreter, as I and my people, writes McComo, have been driven back over the Shunis without being informed why. I should be glad to know from the government what evil we have done. I was only told that we must retire over the Shunis, but for what reason I was not informed. It was agreed that I and my people should live west of the Shunis as well as east of it. When shall I and my people be able to get rest? Railway Tunnels. Of the difficulties which occasionally baffle the man of science in his endeavors to contend with the hidden secrets of the crust of the earth which we inhabit the killsby tunnel of the london and northwestern railway presents a striking example the proposed tunnel was to be driven about 160 feet below the surface it was to be as indeed at island 2399 yards in length with two shafts of the extraordinary size of 60 feet in diameter not only to give air and ventilation But to admit light enough to enable the engine driver, in passing through it with a train, to see the rails from end to end, in order correctly to ascertain, and honestly to make known to the contractors the nature of the ground through which this great work was to pass, the engineer-in-chief sank the usual number of what are called, trial shafts, and, from the result, the usual advertisements for tenders were issued, and the shafts, and see having been minutely examined by the competing contractors, the work was led to one of them for the sum of L99.000. In order to drive the tunnel, it was deemed necessary to construct 18 working shafts, by which, like the heavings of a mole, the contents of the subterranean gallery were to be brought to the surface. This interesting work was in busy progress, when, all of a sudden, it was ascertained, that At about 200 yards from the south end of the tunnel, there existed, overlaid by a bed of clay, 40 feet thick, a hidden quicksand, which extended 400 yards into the proposed tunnel, and which the trial shafts on each side of it had almost miraculously just passed without touching, overwhelmed at the discovery, the contractor instantly took to his bed, and though he was justly relieved by the company from his engagement, the reprieve came too late, for he actually died. The general opinion of the several eminent engineers who were consulted was against proceeding, but Mr. R. Stevenson offered to undertake the responsibility of the work. His first operation was to lower the water with which he had to contend, and it was soon ascertained that the quicksand in question covered several square miles. The tunnel, 30 feet high by 30 feet broad, was formed of bricks, laid in cement, and the bricklayers were progressing in lengths averaging 12 feet when those who were nearest the quicksand, on driving into the roof, were suddenly almost overwhelmed by a deluge of water, which burst in upon them, as it was evident that no time was to be lost, a gang of workmen, protected by the extreme power of the engines, were, with their materials, placed on a raft, and while, with the utmost celerity, they were completing the walls of that short length, the water, in spite of every effort to keep it down, rose with such rapidity, that, at the conclusion of the work, the men were so near being jammed against the roof, that the assistant engineer jumped overboard, and then swimming, with a rope in his mouth, he towed the raft to the nearest working shaft, through which he and his men were safely lifted to daylight, or, as it is termed by miners, to grass. The water now rose in the shaft, and, as it is called, drowned the works, but, By the main strength of 1250 men, 200 horses, and 13 steam engines, not only was the work gradually completed, but, during day and night for eight months, the almost incredible quantity of 1,800 gallons of water per minute was raised, and conducted away, the time occupied from the laying of the first brick to the completion was thirty months, sunfish, while lying in Little Killary Bay, on the coast of Connemara. In Her Majesty's surveying catch Sylvia, we were attracted by a large fin above the surface, moving with an oscillatory motion, somewhat resembling the action of a man sculling at the stern of a boat, and knowing it to be an unusual visitor. We immediately got up the harpoon and went in chase. In the meantime, a country boat came up with the poor animal, and its crew inflicted upon it sundry blows with whatever they could lay their hands on oars, grappling, stones, and sea but were unsuccessful in taking it, and it disappeared for some few minutes, when it again exhibited its fin on the other side of the bay. The dull and stupid animal permitted us to place our boat immediately over it, and made no effort to escape. The harpoon never having been sharpened, glanced off without effect, but another sailor succeeded in securing it by the tail with a boat hook, and passing the bite of a rope behind its fins. We hauled it on shore, under Selrock House the residence of General Thompson, who, with his family, came down to inspect this strange-looking inhabitant of the sea. We were well-soused by the splashing of its fins, ere a dozen hands succeeded in transporting this heavy creature from its native abode to the shore, where it passively died, giving only an occasional movement with its fins, or uttering a kind of grunt. This animal, I believe, is a specimen of the sunfish or excuse. It has no bony skeleton, nor did we in our rather hasty dissection, discover any osseous structure whatever, except as we were informed by one who afterwards inspected it that there was one which stretched between the large fins, its jaws also had bony terminations, and broken into teeth, and parrot-like, which, when not in use, are hidden by the envelopment of the gums, the form of the animal is preserved by an entire cartilaginous case, of about three inches in thickness, covered by a kind of chagreen skin. So amalgamated with the cartilage is not to be separated from it. This case is easily penetrable with a knife. And is of pearly whiteness. More resembling coconut in appearance and texture than anything else I can compare it with. The interior cavity. Containing the vital parts. Terminates a little behind the large fins. Where the cartilage was solid. To its tapered extremity. Which is without a caudal fin. Within. And around the back part. Lay the flesh. Of a coarse fibrous texture. Slightly salmon colored. The liver was such as to fill a common pail. And there was a large quantity of red blood. The nostril. Top of the eye. And top of the gel orifice are in line. As represented in the engraving. The dimensions are as under, by round. And like that of an ox. 2 1 4 inches diameter. Gel orifice. 4 inches by 2 1 4 inches. Dorsal and anal fins equal. 2 feet 2 inches long by one foot three inches wide, vectoral fins, ten inches high by eight broad, length of fish, six feet depth, from the extremities of the large fins, seven feet four inches extreme breadth at the swelling under the eye, only twenty inches weight, six C.W.T., forty-two pounds Captain Bedford, R and battle of the Baltic, of Nelson and the North sing the glorious day's renown, when to battle fierce came forth all the might of Denmark's crown, and her arms along the deep proudly shone, by each gun the lighted brand, in a bold determined hand and the prince of all the land led them on, like leviathans afloat lay their bulwarks on the brine, while the sign of battle flew on the lofty British line, it was ten of April morn, by the chime, as they drifted on their path, there was silence deep as death, and the boldest held his breath for a time, but the might of England flushed to anticipate the scene, and her van the fleeter rushed o'er the deadly space between, Hearts of oak, our captains cried, when each gun from its and a man in lips spread a death shade round the ships, like the hurricane eclipse of the Sunday, again, 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 and the havoc did not slack, till a feeble cheer the Dane to our cheering sent us back their shots along the deep slowly boom, then ceased, and all is well as they strike the shattered sail, or, in conflagration pale, like the gloom, out spoke the victor then, as he hailed them o'er the wave ye are brothers, ye are men, and we conquer but to save, so peace instead of death let us bring, but yield, proud foe, by fleet, with their crews, at England's feet, and make submission meet to our king, then Denmark blessed our chief, that he gave her wounds repose, and the sounds of joy and grief from her people wildly rose, as death withdrew his shades from the day, while the sun looked smiling bright o'er a wide and woeful sight, where the fires of funeral light died away, now joy, old England, raise, for the tidings of thy might, by the festal city's blaze, whilst the wine cup shines in light, and yet, amidst that joy and uproar, let us think of them that sleep, full many a fathom deep, by thy wild and stormy steeple sin o'er, brave hearts, to Britain's pride, once so faithful and so true, on the deck of fame that died with the gallant, Good reuse soft sigh the winds of heaven o'er their grave, while the billow mournful rolls, and the murder made song condoles, singing glory to the souls of the brave. Campbell, artillery tactics. Cannon took their name from the French word can, a reed, before their invention. Machines were used for throwing enormous stones. These were imitated from the Arabs, and called ingenia, once engineer. The first cannon were made of wood, wrapped up in numerous folds of linen. And while secured by iron hoops, the true epic of the use of metallic cannon cannot be ascertained, it is certain, however, that they were in use about the middle of the 14th century. The engraving beneath represents a field battery gun taking up its position in a canter. The piece of ordnance is attached, or limbered up, to an ammunition carriage, capable of carrying two gunners, or privates, whilst the drivers are also drilled so as to be able to serve at the gun in action in case of casualties, having reached its destination, and been detached or, and limbered, from the front carriage, we next see the action of loading, the ramrod having at its other extremity a sheepskin mop, larger than the bore of the piece, and called, a sponge, this instrument, before loading, is invariably used, whilst the touch hole or, vent, is covered by the thumb of the gun or especially numbered off for this important duty, and the air being thus excluded, the fire, which often remains within the bore, attached to either portions of cartridge case or wadding, is extinguished. Serious accidents have been known to occur from a neglect of this important preliminary to loading, as a melancholy instance. A poor fellow may be seen about the Woolwich barracks, both of whose arms were blown off above the elbow joint, whilst ramming home a cartridge before the sponge had been properly applied, if it is deemed essential to keep up a fire upon the enemy during a temporary retreat or in order to avoid an overwhelming body of cavalry directed against guns and supported by infantry. In that case the limber remains as close as possible to the field piece. As shown in the engraving above, skillful provisions are made against the various contingencies likely to occur in action. A wheel may be shattered by the enemy's shot, and the gun thereby disabled for the moment. This accident is met by supporting the piece upon a handspike, firmly grasped by one or two men on each side. According to the weight of the gun, whilst a spare wheel, usually suspended at the back of the tumbril, or ammunition wagon, is obtained, and in a few moments made to remedy the loss, as represented above, the extraordinary rapidity with which a gun can be dislodged from its carriage, and every portion of its complicated machinery scattered upon the ground, is hardly to be believed unless witnessed, but the wonder is increased tenfold on seeing with what magical celerity the death-dealing weapon can be put together again, these operations will be readily understood by an examination of the illustrations, in that at the foot of page 175 the cannon is lying useless upon the earth, one wheel already forms the rude resting place of a gunner, whilst the other is in the act of being displaced, by the application of a rope round the termination of the breach, and the lifting of the trail of the carriage, Care being previously taken that the trunnions are in their respective sockets, a very slight exertion of manual labor is required to put the gun into fighting trim, that we may be understood, we will add that the trunnions are the short round pieces of iron, or brass, projecting from the sides of the cannon, and their relative position can be easily ascertained by a glance at the gun occupying the foreground of the illustration where the dismantling is depicted, to perform the labor thus required in managing cannon is called to serve the guns. Cannon are cast in a solid mass of metal, either of iron or brass, they are then bored by being placed upon a machine which causes the whole mass to turn round very rapidly, the boring tool being pressed against the cannon thus revolving, a deep hole is made in it, called the bore, the tree kangaroo and black leopard, the ordinary mode in which the kangaroos make their way on the ground, as well as by flight from enemies, is by a series of bounds, often of prodigious extent, they spring from their hind limbs alone, using neither the tail nor the forelimbs. In feeding, they assume a crouching, hair hare-like position, resting on the forepaws as well as on the hinder extremities, while they browse on the herbage. In this attitude they hop gently along, the tail being pressed to the ground. On the least alarm they rise on the hind limbs, and bound to a distance with great rapidity. Sometimes, when excited, the old male of the great kangaroo stands on tiptoe and on his tail and is then of prodigious height, it readily takes to the water, and swims well, often resorting to this mode of escape from its enemies, among which is the dingo, or wild dog of Australia, Man Island however, the most unrelenting foe of this inoffensive animal, it is a native of New Holland and Van Diemen's land, and was first discovered by the celebrated navigator Captain Cook, in 1770, while stationed on the coast of New South Wales, in Van Diemen's land the great kangaroo is regularly hunted with fox hounds, as the deer or fox in England, the tree kangaroo, in general appearance, much resembles the common kangaroo, having many of that animal's peculiarities, it seems to have the power of moving very quickly on a tree, sometimes holding tight with its forefeet, and bringing its hind feet up together with a jump, at other times climbing ordinarily, in the island of Java black variety of the leopard is not uncommon and such are occasionally seen in our menageries, they are deeper than the general tint, and the spots show in certain lights only, nothing can exceed the grace and agility of the leopards, they bound with astonishing ease, climb trees, and swim, and the flexibility of the body enables them to creep along the ground with the cautious silence of a snake on their unsuspecting prey, in India the leopard is called by the natives the tree tiger, from its generally taking refuge in a tree when pursued, and also from being often seen among the branches, so quick and active is the animal in this situation, that it is not easy to take a fair aim at him, antelopes, deer, small quadrupeds, and monkeys are its prey, it seldom attacks a man voluntarily, but, if provoked, becomes a formidable assailant, it is sometimes taken in pitfalls and traps, in some old writers there are accounts of the leopard being taken in trap, by means of a mirror, which, when the animal jump against it, brings a door down upon him, charity, did sweeter sounds adorn my flowing tongue, than ever man pronounced or angel sung, had I all knowledge, human and divine that thought can reach, or science can define, and had I power to give that knowledge birth, in all the speeches of the babbling earth, did Shadrach's zeal my glowing breast inspire, to weary tortures, and rejoice in fire, or had I faith like that which Israel saw? When Moses gave them miracles and law, yet gracious charity, indulgent guest, were not thy power exerted in my breast? Those speeches would send up in heated prayer; that scorn of life would be but wild despair. A simple sound word, or better than my voice, my faith, word or form, my eloquence, word a noise, charity, decent, modest, easy, kind, softens the high and rears the abject mind. Knows with just reins and gentle hand. To guide betwixt vile shame and arbitrary pride, not soon provoked. She easily forgives, and much she suffers, as she much believes. Soft peace she brings wherever she arrives, she builds our quiet, as she forms our lives, lays the rough paths of thievish nature even, and opens in each heart a little heaven, each other gift, which God on man bestows, its proper bounds, and due restriction knows, to one fixed purpose dedicates its power, and finishing its act exists no more, thus, in obedience to what heaven decrees, knowledge shall fail, and prophecy shall cease, but lasting charity's more ample sway, nor bound by time, nor subject to decay, in happy triumph shall forever live, and endless good diffuse, and endless praise receive, as through the artist's intervening glass, how I observes the distant planets pass, a little we discover, but allow that more remains unseen than art can show, so whilst our mind its knowledge would improve, its feeble eye intent on things above, high as we may we lift our reason up, by faith directed, and confirmed by hope, yet are we able only to survey dawnings of beams and promises of day, have single quote and single quote as fuller effluence mocks our dazzled sight to great its swiftness, and to strong its light, but soon the mediate clouds shall be dispelled, the sun shall soon be face to face beheld, in all his robes, with all his glory on, seated sublime on his meridian throne, then constant faith, and holy hope shall die, one lost in certainty, and one enjoy, whilst thou, more happy power, fair charity, triumphant sister, greatest of the three, thy office, and thy nature still the same, lasting thy lamp, and in consume thy flame shall still survive shall stand before the host of heathen conferences forever blessing and forever blessed prior sardis sardis the ancient capital of the kingdom of lydia is situated on the river pactolus in the fertile plain below mount molus wealth pomp and luxury characterized this city from very ancient times the story of croesus its last king is frequently alluded to by historians as affording a remarkable example of the instability of human greatness. This monarch considered himself the happiest of human beings, but being checked by the philosopher Solon for his arrogance, he was offended, and dismissed the sage from his court with disgrace. Not long afterwards, led away by the ambiguous answers of the oracles, he conducted a large army into the field against Cyrus, the future conqueror of Babylon, but was defeated, and obliged to return to his capital. Where he shut himself up. Hither he was soon followed and besieged by Cyrus, with a far inferior force, but, at the expiration of fourteen days, the citadel, which had been deemed impregnable, was taken by a stratagem, and Croesus was condemned to the flames. When the sentence was about to be executed, he was heard to invoke the name of Solon, and the curiosity of Cyrus being excited, he asked the cause, and, having heard his narrative, ordered him to be set free and subsequently received him into his confidence, under the Romans, Sardis declined in importance, and, being destroyed by an earthquake, for some time lay desolate, until it was rebuilt by the Roman emperor Tiberius, the situation of Sardis is very beautiful, but the country over which it looks is almost deserted, and the valley is become a swamp, the hill of the citadel, when seen from the opposite bank of the Hermus, Appears of a triangular form, and at the back of it rise ridge after ridge of mountains, the highest covered with snow, and many of them bearing evident marks of having been jagged and distorted by earthquakes. The citadel is exceedingly difficult of ascent, but the magnificent view which it commands of the plain of the Hermus and other objects of interest, amply repays the risk and fatigue. The village, small as it island boasts of containing one of the most remarkable remains of antiquity in Asia, namely, the Ionic temple of the heathen goddess Sibylle, or the Earth, on the banks of the Pactolus. In 1750, six columns of this temple were standing, but four of them have since been thrown down by the Turks, for the sake of the gold which they expected to find in the joints, two or three mills and a few mud huts, inhabited by Turkish herdsmen, contain all the present population of Sardis, Martello Towers. At a time when there appeared to be good reason for believing that the invasion of England was contemplated, the government turned their attention to the defense of such portions of the coast as seemed to present the greatest facility for the landing of a hostile force. As the Camish coast, from eastward or Bay to Dimchurch, seemed more especially exposed, a line of martello towers was erected between these two points, at a distance from each other of from one quarter to three quarters of a mile. Other towers of the same kind were erected on various parts of the coast where the shore was low, in other parts of England, but more particularly in the counties of Sussex and Suffolk, towers of this construction appear to have been adopted, owing to the resistance that was made by the Tower of Martella, in the island of Corsica, to the British forces under Lord Hood and General Dundas, in 1794. This tower which was built in the form of an odd trin cone like the body of a windmill was situated in Martella, or Martel Bay, as it rendered the landing of the troops difficult. Commodore Lindsay anchored in the bay to the westward, and there landed the troops on the evening of the 7th of February, taking possession of the height that commanded the tower, as the tower impeded the advance of the troops. It was the next day attacked from the bay by the vessels Fortitude and Juno, but after a cannonade of two hours and a half. The ships were obliged to haul off. The fortitude having sustained considerable damage from red hot shot discharged from the tower. The tower, after having been cannonaded from the height for two days, surrendered, rather, it would appear, from the alarm of the garrison, than from any great injury that the tower had sustained. The English,